0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is the Electorate. After the Las Vegas shooting, I made a personal vow to do one thing every day to fight gun violence. Sometimes it's something big, and sometimes it's something small. I'll donate to an organization that's dedicated to fighting gun violence, or I'll volunteer, or I'll just talk about it to my family and friends or on social media. And I knew after Las Vegas that I wanted to dedicate one or more of these podcast episodes to gun violence. This commitment led me to a book. The book is titled, Dangerous Discourses, Feminism, Gun Violence, and Civic Life. The book is a collection of essays by women and scholars who've done extensive research on gun violence from several different angles. Today's conversation is with Professor Catherine Squires. She's also the editor of the book. Her essay is titled, Making Visible Victimhood, Bringing Intersectionality to Mass Shootings, Say Her Name, Black Women in Charleston. This essay is about the Charleston shooting at Mother Emanuel Church, where there were nine victims total, all African-Americans, six of whom were women. In our conversation, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the shooter or his motives, but we do talk about the victims. And specifically, we talk about how social movements like Say Her Name, Black Lives Matter, or even the MeToo hashtag, help bring power and visibility to the stories of the victims. We also discuss how the exclusion of women of color in these movements necessitates the need to drive sub-movements. I think what I learned the most from this conversation is that whenever there's a large social movement that gains traction, we should all be very careful to notice the ways in which marginalized groups, in this case, women of color, are excluded. So let's begin. Here is my conversation with Professor Catherine Squires. Professor Catherine Squires, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. In your essay, you open with a scene from the Charleston shooting at Mother Emanuel Church. And there was a period following the shooting during which the police withheld the names of the victims. But there was a plea on social media, on Twitter actually, from an activist, that the names of the victims be released so that their names could be associated with the Say Her Name movement and the Black Lives Matter movement. What was the significance of making that connection?
1: Well, because if we're thinking about African-American people using Twitter and particularly people who have a high level of identification with their African-American culture, participating in the speech traditions of that culture and also not allowing the kinds of exclusions or overlooking that often happens when Black lives are lost to be replicated in the types of media forums that African-Americans have more control over, like Twitter, is really important. So when I saw that particular Twitter participant declare, like, I need the names of the Charleston victims because these two movements are crucial to history, that idea of saying the names and making them public and trying to humanize people being a central tenet, almost, of what... Black Lives Matter and Say Her Name is about to keep that visibility of real human beings in circulation was just top of mind for this particular activist and also resonated with the practices of those hashtag campaigns.
0: All right so one of the interesting things about using this hashtag in relation to these shootings is that prior to this I think both hashtags had not been associated with with mass shootings, right? They'd been associated with police brutality and I think that the say her name hashtag was used with Sandra Bland and actually before that Because mass shootings, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they're typically indiscriminate, right? They look for large, soft targets, and they don't have a specific gender target or a specific racial target. And I think Charleston was probably one of the first, and, you know, the Pulse nightclub shooting. So what was to gain by broadening the scope of the use of that hashtag?
1: Well, I think in part because, you know, one of the victims was a reverend from the church. And so in the Black Lives Matter pantheon of names, part of the reason why I say her name is was even necessary is to elevate the fact that women were also being victimized by state agents like police or prison guards, et cetera. Whereas the face of the Black Lives Matter movement, so to speak, had always been male, even if the activists who started the hashtag themselves were were women-identified people. So I think in this case, I mean, why I was attracted to this case and how the "Say Her Name" hashtag became part of it is exactly what you said. This hadn't been part of mass shootings. You know, there was no "Say Her Name" going on with the UCSB shootings when Elliot Rodger massacred people in Santa Barbara. Um, of course, none of the the female victims there were African American. But I do think it's really interesting. To think about how a hashtag that was originally associated with state-sanctioned violence, like police violence then moved over very quickly to a white supremacist shooting which really shows the resonance between the racist underpinnings of racial profiling and the ways that African Americans are overpoliced and thus also overexposed to police violence and that there's really a connection there between the anti-black violence of Dylan Roof and the anti-black violence of police So I want to talk a little bit about the history of
0: the Say Her Name hashtag, right? Because like I said before, my awareness of it started with Sandra Bland, but it was introduced before that, I think in 2015 by the African American Policy Forum. They introduced the hashtag to, I guess, create a subset from the Black Lives Matter movement. And I, you know it's funny. I was talking to someone today, and I and I mentioned the hashtag, and I was talking about you know doing this podcast, and they'd heard of the Black Lives Matter hashtag, but not the Say Her Name movement, which I think is really interesting. So the I guess the people who introduced the Say Her Name hashtag, why was there a need to introduce a gender specific hashtag separate from Black Lives Matter?
1: Well, I think you you pretty much said it in your own intro there that the idea that women are equally vulnerable to police violence is sometimes hard for people to wrap their minds around because for so long, the the face of the Black victim of racist violence has been, you know, a male lynching victim or a male victim of a police shooting or a male civil rights leader who is martyred, right? And so because our public imagery is so overrepresented with black male victims of this kind of racist violence to actually have to generate a specific hashtag to get people to see how vulnerable women of color also are to this kind of violence is necessary. And you wouldn't think that would be the case, you know, in the 21st century, but it really is. And it also resonates really well with a lot of the work that's been going on about the prison industrial complex, where we see that women and specifically women of color are the fastest growing proportion of people behind bars, mostly for nonviolent offenses. And so that same pattern of over and hyper-policing communities of color is, of course, going to also impact uh, women and girls who are in those communities, not just because they might be related to men, who get caught up in the system, but they're also getting caught up in the system and being abused by the perpetrators of that system, um, sometimes literally being caught in the crossfire when police are coming to arrest or harass other people in their households. And sometimes they are the targets themselves, as in the case of Sandra Bland.
0: I think what's really interesting about the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, racial justice movements, having men at the forefront is that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Black familial culture is usually matriarchal, right? Women are typically at the forefront of of family culture in, in Black families. And so to not have women at the forefront of these racial justice movements
1: seems incongruent, I guess. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, I don't know about, you know, being able to make a blanket statement that Black family structures are essentially matriarchs, uh, matriarchal, but I think the very notion particularly when we think about the the new histories of the civil rights movement that are coming out and also people looking at the longer civil rights movement stretching back to the anti-slavery movement you can find women working in those movements you know from the very beginning and then those strategic assessments about you know who's going to actually even be taken seriously as a leader that kind of discussion has gone on uh, for centuries. And so I think it's really interesting with the Black Lives Matter movement that the women who were responsible for creating that hashtag, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, and Patrice Colors have been very active and other people have allied themselves with them in this matter to say, look, it is women and queer people and others who have taken up this fight and who have used their creative and strategic energy to make sure that these victims of police violence are not forgotten and that we start having a different conversation about not only what's going on in terms of oppression against Black people, but also how we actually respond to that oppression, not by doing the same old, same old, which is find you know, one black leader, right? They're they're actually going back to the history and and lifting up the more communal and gender diverse movements that have always been part of the movements for Black Lives. It's just that sometimes the official historiography and the media always like to look for that charismatic black male leader um, because that's what they're looking for, right? That's what they're used to. And so they've been very clear, and I think others like Kimberly Crenshaw, who started with the African American Policy Forum, the Say Her Name hashtag, they've been very clear that having suppressed or hidden women's work in the past was actually a detriment to the movement and also meant that certain issues did not get resolved or addressed, or we actually literally could not see problems that were emerging when we didn't include gender in the frame. So I think for the most part, it's that really pushing for intersectionality, not just as we need to have X number of women present at the leadership table, which of course we do, but also that we actually use the tools from black feminism to actually analyze what's happening and to be able to anticipate what are some other problems that are involved or that overlap with police violence that we're not thinking about if we only have the lens trained on Black males.
0: Right. So, you know, you mentioned that the exclusion of gender and sexuality in the analysis of racism can lead to blind spots and problems. What are some examples of that?
1: Well, for example, um, you know, if you're thinking about the achievement gap, the so-called achievement gap, and a lot of folks have looked at the ways that, you know, Black male students are the most behind, so to speak, or the ones that show the greatest gap between themselves and their white peers. If you don't include, if you don't include both genders in that analysis, then you're going to miss a lot of what's going on in terms of what's happening with the over policing of black girls at schools, et cetera. I think it's also important to think about this in terms of when people are looking at the issue of violence, right? If when people look at the issue of of sexual violence, for example, a lot of folks have talked about this, that one of the problems in the 1980s and the 90s is when um, more mainstream feminist groups were looking at trying to get... Uh, sexual assault taken more seriously by the police, et cetera, and, and domestic violence and things like this, they look to the police as a solution for this. So making it easier for people to call the police, making it easier for police to gain access to people's homes, et cetera, to protect victims. But what they didn't anticipate because they weren't thinking about the lens of How race and gender intersect with policing is that the types of neighborhoods and the types of couples who were going to be more exposed to police, and also the way that Black women in particular are perceived as being, you know, sort of stronger than white women and also more quick to be violent than white women, that actually domestic violence policing might lead to more women who were actually victims of domestic violence in communities of color with being over-policed themselves and being targets for arrest. So when you start to Try to look at a problem from the vantage point that takes into account race and gender or race and gender and class or sexuality and race, then you start to see some of the other unanticipated outcomes that only using one line of identification would get you.
0: Right. You know, I was actually thinking about this in the context of and I, and this is a bit of an aside because I know you didn't write about the Me Too hashtag that that was, you know, recently trending. But, you know, I'm I'm black and I've also been the target of sexual harassment. And so I was a bit torn when I saw the Me Too hashtag trending on Twitter or just on social media generally and whether to use it or not, because it's, it's really similar in that, you know, the Me Too hashtag when I saw it, I thought about it in a broader context of sexual harassment and sexual assault, not necessarily aligning with my own experience, because I think that when you experience a lot of these things as a Black woman, it doesn't often align with what women, you know, non-women of color experience. Right. And so, you know, that I guess that begs the question is, you know, do we need a subtag or like a sub-movement for, for all of these major movements? You know, is it is important to call out the black woman's experience with sexual harassment and sexual assault with something like Me Too?
1: I think so. And if only in the sense that complicating the conversation a little bit without taking away the the necessity of the critique, right? So the question needs to be raised, right? Yes, we're glad that these very high-profile men are finally being called to account for their illegal and disgusting behavior. Then the question becomes, why is it so hard for women, particularly women of color who work in the service sector, to get anyone to believe that they are suffering this kind of harassment and worse every single day as they work in hotels or restaurants or in massage parlors or wherever they might be, right? So if we think about how these, these white-collar and entertainment world, mostly white female stars and superstars in the technology world and superstars in Hollywood and the news, they are getting a platform very quickly for coming out and talking about their experience. But what is happening in in labor laws and in immigration laws that make it Really dangerous for many women whose status is much more dependent on keeping a job. It's so much more dangerous for them to report this kind of abuse that might be happening on the job with their coworkers or with their employers. So, me too is great, but is that going to generate any kind of solidarity with women who are much more vulnerable, who really Don't have the money to hire the lawyers who are not in the kinds of jobs where you get hush payments. You know, these are the sorts of things that we need to push our sisters who are on the Me Too hashtag to say, and then what else, right? And then what else?
0: Right, right. So back to the motive for the Charleston shooting. So when the when the hashtag was introduced by the American the African American Policy Forum, you know they pointed to the white supremacist patriarchal nature of the ideology behind that, right? And then you write about that also in your your essay. What are some of the examples of the classic display of patriarchal behaviors in the Charleston shooting?
1: Well. Dylan Roof, I think the classic, I mean, I, I hate to even repeat the things that, that he said or that were right. found in his, you know, social media. But, you know, the, the most chilling thing that was reported was that he told one of the survivors that he had to do it because black men were coming for white women. And so that really old and violent understanding of white patriarchal privilege, where white men use the defense of white women as an excuse to terrorize black communities the idea of white female purity being at the apex of civilization and that white men are bound to protect that white womanhood which of course means ensuring white purity for the next generation because you know the 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 threat of the the black male to the white female is that, quote unquote, they'll pollute the blood of the next generation. So, you know, from the era of slavery through the Ku Klux Klan, through the anti-integration resistance in the 50s and the 60s, and that continues today, that idea that, you know, Ida B. Wells famously called a threadbare lie and then almost got lynched herself back in the 1890s. It just has so much purchase in this neo-Confederate mindset, this idea that Black people's sexuality is out of control and white men are the ones who need to control it.
0: Right, and I think someone pointed out that the logic just breaks down because most of the victims in the Charleston shooting were women. So, you know, if he, you know, his justification was to, you know, protect white women from, from black men, that, that kind of breaks down. I'm not really sure, you know, how you can make that, that connection or how he made that connection. But, you know,
1: I guess we don't want to go too deeply into his brain. Right. And I mean, I think, you know, just destroying black bodies, whether they're male or female, right, is, is just it's open season correct and for him he he picked a place where he could be pretty sure he'd be the only person armed right and also destroying black women means you're destroying the future mothers you know and sisters and aunts and grandmothers of a community as well so we know that one of the main weapons of war is always to attack and try to degrade women and we see that all over the world with you know mass rape being a weapon of war so you know for people who believe in like a race war if they if they believe in white supremacy and that it's really a numbers game and if you actually one of my one of my one of my colleagues is actually writing a book about white women in the neo nazi movement and one of their big goals is to have as many children as possible to outbreed the what they call the inferior races who are breeding too much. <laughs> um, and so you'll see these websites and they actually weaponize their children. They say, you need to have a quiver full. So they, they imagine their children to be arrows that they can then shoot out into society to do battle. So if you don't have a quiver full of children, then you're not a good archer. So this mother as race warrior by having more than two children and is just it's part of that whole that whole community that whole sub community that imagines this sort of zero sum game in a race war that white women do their duty by having more children. So that's a big digression, <laughs> but the logic is actually there, right? That yeah. that it's. It's it's your it's part of the battle is to out outbreed, um and outlast. Right. I think somebody missed the point of, of motherhood. <laughs> um. <laughs> yes, I think there's a lot of things about family that are warped, but to get back to that patriarchal initiative, right? What's the role of women? To have children. And so, you know, then the the white man's role is to make sure that those children come out pure. Yeah, I just I, I I suspect that we may
0: be giving his his thinking a little bit too much credit in in relation to its organization. I don't know if he's that organized in his thinking, but you know, again, we don't need to really analyze his thoughts. But so I wanted to talk about um, Black Twitter specifically and the, and the power of hashtags in kind of proliferating these movements. So both of these movements say her name in Black Lives Matter. They both exist outside of social media. So how does social media, and Twitter specifically, and Black Twitter, give more power to these messages?
1: Well, it's really all in the circulation. And I guess, you know, my scholarship specifically isn't in trying to find one-to-one relationship between what's happening on Twitter and what's happening in the streets. Although I think we see that sort of amplification effect, you can't guarantee that people are going to come out just because you put it on Twitter, obviously. Um, and I lean very heavily on my colleague, Charlton McIlwain's work. He's at New York University, and he's actually shown through network analysis how well-networked Black Lives Matter activists are with other pre-existing networks of Black activism, as well as more left-leaning media and particular celebrities who show a lot of social consciousness and political awareness. And so being networked already with all of those other sites and media and individuals who are influential has made Black Lives Matter a, you know, really helped amplify the message very quickly once the activists decided that this is the hashtag, this is what we're doing, and they were already networked in. And so then every new iteration, every new piece of messaging or output gets to resonate through those channels. So I think it's really important to remind ourselves that even though it looked like Black Lives Matter came out of nowhere in the wake of the murder of Trayvon Martin. Really, all of the activists who came up with that brilliant hashtag had been working on things in different networks of activism for a very long time. And so, yes, it was a stroke of brilliance, but it was a stroke of brilliance that was born of a lot of hard work and networking prior to the release of the hashtag. Um, And there's actually a lot of good histories and oral histories of those three women and what they had been doing and the work they had been doing in their communities and with youth, et cetera, um, before that. So, I think we can learn a lot about collective action from that.
0: Right. And the same is true. And I alluded to this before. The same is true with the say her name hashtag. And it was actually introduced. It doesn't have the same history as Black Lives Matter. It was introduced in 2015, but it was before Sandra Bland. It really kind of took off after it was associated with the death of Sandra Bland. Right. I think... <laughs>
1: Yes, yes. And I think, you know, the ways that Sandra Bland herself had been activated by Black Lives Matter, and that made her story even more resonant with the message that The African-American Policy Forum was trying to get out when Say Her Name joined with Black Lives Matter. I think that really created oscillation between two overlapping sets of networks, you know, one that was much more solidly about black feminists and one that was much more broad. And I think it just makes a lot of sense that they came together after Charleston as well.
0: Right, So it's good that Twitter and social media outlets can give power to a lot of these movements, but you mentioned something in the the essay that I don't quite understand. There's a, a comment that says, when a hashtag is retweeted intensely, it activates the potential for race to exceed itself by multiplying its connections. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, there I was working off of some of another scholar's ideas. So Sanjay Sharma's work on black tags was what I was working off of there. Once you've put a hashtag out into Twitter and it gets its own space in the social media universe, you don't get to control anymore what people attach it to you know so a comedian could decide that what you said was lame and then start ironically repurposing your hashtag and actually another person who's in the book here sarah janelle jackson who did the chapter on the violence against women act she has a brilliant piece about the hashtag my nypd so this is actually a perfect example of what i mean by it can start to exceed just one person or even one group's definition of, of meaning of what blackness means or what the actual hashtag means. So the New York police department wanted to do a public relations campaign to showcase positive things about the New York police department. And so they, their PR department came up with this hashtag my NYPD and invited the public to share stories on Twitter or pictures of themselves with police officers, you know, like at the baseball game or in the park or a cop that helped you get your cat out of the tree or whatever it was. And so they thought that this was going to just generate positive anecdotes and start circulating on Twitter. Well, they, they didn't, I, I don't understand how they could not have <laughs> foreseen that especially after you know, Black Lives Matter and uh, Zuccotti Park and everything else, that that activists wouldn't hijack <laughs> this hashtag and then use it to circulate all kinds of, easily obtainable anecdotes and photos of police brutality and police disrespect. And so it just was out of control. And then it's not like they could tell Twitter to shut down, like don't allow people to use the hashtag my NYPD because it's not offensive. It's not, you know, it's not using pornography. It's, it's just my NYPD. <laughs> um, so it got out of control. And so, you know, it's a milder case what I'm looking at, in, in this essay, but the African American Policy Forum is trying to highlight police violence against women of color and and show that it's not just men who are targeted or harmed but it's not like i don't think they minded and of course they themselves endorsed the use of say her name to make sure that black women victims of gun violence of mass shootings were also included in the public mourning right so they endorsed it you know i can't i can't imagine that if you know <laughs> at some point a White female supremacist was killed if someone started repurposing, say, her name for that situation. I, I can't imagine the African-American Policy Forum being okay with that. Um, but you could imagine a world in which that happens just like you have All Lives Matter, right? And so so these sorts of things you know, that's the risk you run when you send a hashtag out into the world, and particularly one that has a a meaning that's attached to an understanding of a racial community, is that once it goes out there and people start remixing it and playing with it and attaching it to different things that have meaning for them, it starts to expand our understanding of what it means to be Black. It, it's no longer static. And I think that's part of what Sharma is talking about when he gets excited about the potential of a space like Black Twitter to really make the category Black much more elastic than it usually feels sort of in dominant or mainstream media. Because you have this recirculation and this reverberation and people are attaching and reattaching different associations and understandings of of black experience to these hashtags. Like, by definition, they're not static and they start to interact with our own understandings of what it means to be black are a part of the African diaspora. And I think that's really exciting. For some people, it's really scary, but I think it's really exciting. Right. Well, back to the
0: NYPD. I mean, I I think I found that um, there are some people in some groups who should just not introduce hashtags. Betsy DeVos is is a good example of that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There are some people should stay away from Twitter and their advisors should make sure they don't go on Twitter too often.
0: Yeah. Well but so so you mentioned that there there there's the power to to expand the use or the meaning of a hashtag. Is there is there a risk of diluting its original meaning? And I I'll just mention that I was looking up the say her name hashtag last night in preparation for this to see how it's been used most recently. And it's expanded. So I think it was used in relation to there was a journalist I think that was that was killed. I saw it related to her name. So I mean I guess the risk is there, like you mentioned before. Are
1: the gains worth the risk? I would say so. I mean, there's not, I mean, anytime you put any creative object into the public, it's it's out of your hands. You can make arguments about how it should be used to what it does refer, but at the end of the day, spending most of your time trying to convince other people exactly how the use has to be policed is probably not worth your time so you know for a a journalist to be associated with say her name I think is really interesting especially since we still have in terms of like foreign correspondents or political journalists who are doing undercover reporting we still have a very male sensibility of who's out there in the war zones or who's out there getting the tough interviews you know I think most people still have a prototypical man as that foreign correspondent or that person who goes into a war zone. So, you know, I'd say that's really an interesting use of of the hashtag that resonates at least with its intent to make sure that people don't forget women who are in situations where violence is a possibility. But, you know, yeah, I think that's something that activists have always had to deal with, right? You know, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud or black power, right? Black power is still a phrase that people sometimes cringe when they hear it because It was so over associated with the image of the fist and the gun. When, you know, if you actually look at the Black Panther party platform and the programming that they did you know guns were just only one very small part of their architecture of self-defense and it wasn't aggressive outwardly except for towards you know aggression from the police so you know so so a lot of that media hype around what does black power mean you know it helped the panthers get a lot of publicity and it excited a lot of people but it also has led to a continuing debate over the nature of the movements of the late 60s and early 70s and what different groups were actually arguing for. So Twitter just makes it happen faster, right? (laughs) I think for people of color and for women of all colors, it's always been, you know, you always have more scrutiny and you always have more pushback when you put an idea out in the world. And so preparing yourself for that is really important. And I think for the most part, the the way that people have responded to you know counter attempts like all lives matter etc has been really astute they've been really good at at having answers ready for people who push back and say why black lives matter why not all lives matter you know so there's been a lot of ink and a lot of gigabytes spilled on that but they were ready with with those right those answers really fast.
0: So can you talk a bit about the role of Twitter in relation to public mourning, I guess, in the tradition of mourning in Black communities?
1: Right. So I made a connection to the tradition in some parts of the African-American church of having the funeral and the funeral oration be a moment where one can speak truth to power and to situate the death of a beloved person from the community within the large, larger context of the challenges the community faces and then telling the story of their life in a way that not only upholds their spirit, but also shows how they contributed to pushing against oppression and unfairness. So that tradition stretches back to the days of slavery and really continues. And you see it in things like when Mamie Till allowed her son Emmett's body, which had just been you know, destroyed when he was kidnapped and murdered in the 1950s, to be in an open casket, to let photographers take pictures of it so that his body then became a symbol of resistance. And I'm not going to feel ashamed of what happened to my son. The shameful thing is that he was murdered and to not be afraid of that and to use The space of what some people would say is sort of funeral and should just be bound to the family to make a public statement. So I see the repetition, it's almost a ritual repetition of the names and people just retweeting the names over and over and over again in different combinations with different graphics and different associations as a part of that public mourning that becomes productive and a call to activism, not just a call to remember the individuals, but a call to think deeply about one's place in the larger movement.
0: Right. So you in the essay talking about the case of Sierra Finkley and how, say, her name hashtag was used in relation to her case. What happened with Sierra
1: Finkley? Well, she is an African-American woman in Madison, Wisconsin. And like another case that other people might be familiar with in Florida, she was arrested after shooting at an abusive ex-partner who had actually been chasing her. And kicked down her door. And so unlike a lot of white men who get the benefit of the doubt that they are acting in self-defense, she was charged. She was charged and she was taken to jail. So we see this happen in lots of cases. And like I said earlier, in terms of the way that people respond to domestic violence, oftentimes Black women are seen as being sort of hyper strong and often uh, masculinized. And so they are not believed. Police don't believe them when they say they're defending themselves because of those stereotypes of African-American women being aggressive and mean and so sierra finkley was defending herself and her daughter when she was being stalked and chased and this man actually was chasing her in his car and kicked down the door to her apartment but yet and still she was taken to jail yeah that's insane yeah yeah and the same thing with the woman i'm forgetting her name my apologies but in florida which is the state of stand your ground right where George Zimmerman was able to argue that he felt so endangered by a teenager with Skittles that he had to shoot him. She shot a bullet into the ceiling when her abusive ex came into her home. Right. And she was taken to jail, right? Because she was seen as aggressive and threatening and, and, She was, she didn't even shoot at the guy. She shot into the ceiling and in the stand your ground state, she was not allowed to stand her ground. She was even in her own home, unlike George Zimmerman. So that double standard and the way that the stereotype of the aggressive woman of color who must be guilty of something comes into play is is something that we have to be really on, on the lookout for. And that's also part of the say her name campaign is, the ways that that black women get profiled is slightly different, but just as deadly as as black men.
0: Right, I remember that case, and I was, and it's actually in one of the essays within the book. I think it's the Lady Killers chapter, um, the case where she, you know, shoots a warning shot actually, and it doesn't hit him, and and she was given, I think, something like twenty years. And the judge threatened to give her more than 20 years. And she didn't hurt anyone. She didn't kill anyone. You know, and I think that without movements and hashtags like, say, her name, you know, women like Sierra Finkley would be forgotten. I mean, she was given, you know, in the end, you know, quite a bit of legal support and social support. And I, I don't think she's actually in, in prison right now. But I think without those hashtags, I think that her case wouldn't have gotten the attention and the help that, that she needed.
1: No, I agree. I mean, in, back in the day, it would have been a telephone tree. <laughs> (laughs) you know, trying to find people who might be willing to write letters. But now you can, you know, do a GoFundMe page for a lawyer. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are possible now through these networks.
0: Professor Catherine Squires, thank you so much for, for talking to me today.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm glad that you found the book and I look forward to hearing what my other authors say when they are able to talk to you in the future.